Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering, but if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. Joining us for the show are Andrew Bridgen, renegade MP, cast out of his own party for asking questions about excess deaths, vaccine injuries, and the social controls implemented during lockdown. It's going to be, I know because I've already had it, a fantastic conversation. And along with him is Meryl Nass, who has opposed the WHO treaty. She's a family doctor who was struck off for putting her patients ahead of globalist top-down edicts. We're also going to be talking about the largest study into COVID in history and it's astonishing revelations. You will be, you won't be baffled to learn. You will appreciate and understand that it is obviously, obviously what's finally been revealed is myocarditis, pericarditis, brain syndromes. And even my favorite bit of this is there's a moment where it says, there's, there's, uh, there's one particular disease it causes that may make it difficult for you to think and walk. It's extraordinary. Here's the conversation. Meryl Nass and Andrew Bridgen, thank you for joining me on Stay Free with Russell Brand. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got so many things to discuss. Uh, Primarily, we're talking about individual freedom and we're talking about democracy and we're talking about institutional power. And in particular, lately, I've been reflecting on a sort of a new and emergent Kafka-esque style set of bureaucracies that are able through the appearance of banality and the claim that they are protecting our individual freedom and preserving our safety, able to implement measures that would previously have been regarded as straight up tyranny and i suppose the area where both of you have a degree of shared expertise and understanding is this emergent who treaty which i understand is just one piece of legislature that could be used to inhibit control and limit national sovereignty and our freedom as uh, individuals meryl i wonder if you might start by uh, explaining what this twin threat is uh yes well the who is made up of a bureaucracy and member states and the member states send diplomats to the WHO and this group has created two different documents that both of which are intended to be approved this May and they will transfer considerable sovereignty over from the nation states to the WHO to its director general and its bureaucracy. Now why would we want to do that? The excuse is that we handled the pandemic so poorly last time that there's going to be more pandemics. We've got to have a structure in place to handle them better. How do they want to handle them better? More of the same. There has been no after-action look at what actually happened last time. The WHO really can't make any claims that it did anything right, and yet it wants to have greater control. It wants to be able to transmute itself from an agency that gives advice to one that actually governs the health of the whole world. Why is it and how is it that this issue has become regarded as a 
a, a the forum for lunacy and conspiracy theory then when it seems that what you're discussing is government overreach or bureaucratic overreach a, a lack of democracy and i've even seen um, recently at the wf uh, irony of ironies the head of the who claiming that the what's um, the opposition to the who pandemic treaty treaty is in itself a conspiracy theory i don't even understand how claiming 5% of each nation's health budget the ability to impose control and legislation mandate vaccines am i right mandate lockdowns that that is what the treaty includes isn't it am i do well, I it's, mean? it's worse than that because it's not only for human pathogens it can be for an animal pathogen um, or an environmental threat, something to do with climate change, uh, or the threat of any of those risks. And they've also, in the new documents, they reduced the reporting time, mandating that every country would have to report any possible risk within 72 hours of discovering it to the WHO, and that could lead to a lot of false alarms and uh, a lot of powers to the WHO. These two instruments would give the Director General of the WHO, the ability to call something called a public health emergency of international concern for any of those reasons I gave earlier. And he would immediately seize basically total control under the One Health policy where everything's affected by health, and that means the environment, food, business, and it's also over non-governmental stakeholders, so that's private businesses. They could shut down any business in the country for any reason at the whim of the WHO Director General. And not only does he decide when he calls this emergency and takes these enormous powers, and bear in mind, if you look at how they handled COVID-19, that was three years under the emergency, before they said the emergency was over, and then they carried on with the monkeypox emergency, so we still would have been on, under an emergency control. Um, he also decides when the emergency is over. And I think having taken those sort of powers from our elected representatives in our parliaments, our democracies, It'd be a long time before we got them back, if ever. You know that we have got wonderful supporters and we've got another sponsor right now and I'd love you to stay for the entirety of this if you can. We can't continue to bring this groundbreaking content without the support of our fantastic sponsors and by God, we are lucky to have them, especially given this simple fact. Did you know that you, yes you, I'm talking to you, are 80% water? No, what about hair and teeth? overall your water and the kind of water you put in your body therefore it could be argued affects 80% of your health and your life but not all waters are created equally other kinds of waters such as tap or bottled or even stink water can be literally dead acidic or even poisonous 70 to 80% of the immune system is housed in your gut contaminated water poor diet and pesticides weaken your gut by nearly 20% in how it functions daily well I'm here to tell you today about the air water healing eco plus you press the button here and it begins to infuse your water with hydrogen ionizing your water and bringing it to life this hydrogen rich water goes down into your gut you can even feel the difference in your energy levels as you drink this hydrogenated water the air water healing plus increases its anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties additionally it can increase energy slow down the aging process and improve muscle recovery after a workout over 
1,400 studies prove that by neutralizing these harmful free radicals, hydrogen water has been proven to help regulate heart disease, diabetes, reduce wrinkles and skin issues, and it can even speed up wound healing. The UVC2 light kills 99.9% .9 of harmful germs and bacteria, including E. coli. Yuck. It also comes with a five-year warranty. Go to airwaterhealing.com and use the promo code brand for a discount, plus so they know I sent you there, it will make this advert a real success. Replace your dead, stinking, wretched stink water and feel your energy level surge. That's airwaterhealing.com, promo code brand. Let me have a sip of this stuff right now. Mm. Mm. Do you know what? Just one sip of that, and I feel powerful enough to bring down the globalist institutions that are tyrannizing us right now. It's very strange that these types of bills and measures appear to be increasingly imposed using vague and diffuse language that deliberately, it seems to me, opaque and difficult to determine and define. The UK online safety bill similarly seems to be open to exploitation and easily utilised by a censoring government. The same for the uh, legislation passed in Ireland or that's proposed to be uh, passed in Ireland, the, uh, the Hate Speech Act. The EU has similar legislation. It seems that whether it's speech individual liberty, our ability to uh, travel. There seems to be an increase in authoritarianism continually undergirded by safety. Um, you're, of course, a physician, Meryl. What, why in particular are medical emergencies and pandemics being used to assert control? Tell us a little bit about how you've gone from, and I understand that you've lost your license to Correct. practice as a physician. I'd love to know or the legitimacy of that measure. Because I'm always aware, I don't know about you guys, you're like, because you're English, you'll be aware of like what my public profile is, the degree to which I am publicly attacked and, and how in some quarters ridiculed and derided. And, and, and that of course you do. <laughs> and so that, they're like, and, and, and I imagine that within your profession to lose your license must be the cause of great consternation and possibly even shame. So can you tell me how medicine is being weaponized, how the profession of, uh, uh, of professional care and medicine is being weaponized and what we saw in particular take place in the pandemic and and how it has changed you know over this period since you've lost your license okay that's a lot of questions i know just pick your favorites <laughs> all right um like that who treaty it's a pick and mix bill okay so i okay. think that um elites globalists um really wanted to gain much greater power over the world and the world's resources as well as the world's, world's people. Now, how could they do that? They needed a multinational organization. Well, was, were they going to do it through the World Bank? Were they going to do it through the UN? The WHO is the most benign sounding. <laughs> the WHO is completely unaccountable. You cannot take it to any court in the world. The people who work there all have diplomatic immunity. And there is no Security Council with veto power. So once the Director General gets a power, nobody can stop him. And that, so that is why the WHO was chosen, okay? So to use the WHO, you need to use health. So doctors had to be controlled. How do you control the doctors? You, t you make a few examples. You take away some careers, uh. and you show them if they don't behave themselves, if they don't go along with the narrative, this can happen to you as well. So I had a completely clean record for over 40 years. I testified many times to the U.S. Congress, to states, written papers, given talks. I'm in who's who in America, who's who in the world. 
you know, I thought I was, you know, untouchable. But I treated people for COVID with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which is perfectly legal. But the state and federal government wanted people to think it wasn't. And I told the truth about vaccines because I happen to be a vaccine and bioterrorism expert. And um, so the board immediately suspended my license without any hearing, without her hearing me say one word on the basis that I had done these perfectly legal things. And they thought they could fool me and fool the other doctors into thinking I had committed a crime, but I knew I hadn't because I'd had some legal experience already. And uh, so then I demanded a hearing and they had to find new charges against me because the, those couldn't stick. Those were things were legal. So then they made up some new charges, which I hadn't done, and got a board of six members to convict me of those things. And so my license remained suspended. Now, before we answer the next question, I want to say to you, those of you on YouTube, please consider clicking the link in the description and joining us on Rumble and indeed becoming an Awakened Wonder. We do additional content every week. Like this week, I'm talking about Amy Winehouse and the new film about her and the sort of sacrifice of celebrities, in particular female celebrities at the altar of our crazed culture. Diana, Marilyn Monroe, Amy Winehouse, fated and ultimately annihilated by a devouring, unconscious, and you would say, perhaps some of you, demonic culture. The rest of the conversation with Andrew and Merrill is fantastic. You're going to want to join us for that. Click the link in the description. The term for this emergent phenomena is lawfare, I understand, Correct. to target enmities, enemies, ideological primarily, and to impose these kind of measures on them. When you were describing the lack of accountability within the WHO, the lack of oversight, the inability to regulate the diplomatic immunity of many of its members, it's pretty astonishing. I understand that a significant amount of the WHO's funding comes from the taxes of uh, member states, but also yes. there are significant private donations. Uh, what is the proportion of private donation they receive? And, uh, they that they receive and doesn't this lack of oversight coupled with the manner in which they receive their uh, much of their funding leave the WHO open to exploitation absolutely uh, the WHO is not really run by its member states they meet once a year the WHO functions 365 days a year so the dues from the member states only cover 15% of the budget the rest the 85% is all voluntary now some of that comes from nations but almost all of it is earmarked. So if Germany gives extra money, it may be to buy a German product, maybe a German vaccine, hmm. you see. And if the UK gives money, it's to do something the UK wants. 75% of the entire WHO budget is earmarked. Some years, the year that President Trump took, tried to take the US out of the WHO and stopped funding it for one year, um, Bill Gates was the number one top funder of the WHO and provided them about 11% of their budget. There are several agencies that, uh, or organizations that Bill Gates founded, Gavi, CEPI, as well as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all of which contribute to the WHO. And then there are many other secondary organizations um, that Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation contribute to, and then they secondarily contribute to the WHO. It sounds like quite a transactional organisation that's open to exploitation. And whilst I think all of us um, no longer fear the tag of conspiracy theorists regarding it somewhat as a badge of honour, it's certainly a slur that we are aware of. But what you have recounted are simple fiduciary and uh, uh, financial details that I 
easy to verify and track. With this new WHO uh, treaty, there are concomitantly across the world numerous petitions where people suffocating from lack of democracy reach out in an attempt to prevent these measures being passed. The one in the UK has nearly reached its requisite 100,000 signatures, which will mean that there's a possibility that it will be debated in Parliament. An empty Parliament, Andrew, I, I'll warrant a, a scenario with which you are well familiar. Uh, why is it so hard for us to be able to reject what appear to be bureaucratic, globalist, administrative bodies that don't uh, only don't seem to exist on the basis of any democratic well, legitimacy. It, we will have to have a, a vote of both houses of parliament on the new treaty. Well, it's called the Pandemic Treaty, the Pandemic Accord, and now it's apparently called the Pandemic Agreement, which no one's agreed to yet. But the amendments to the international health regulations, the second horse they're running in this race, and they don't mind which one wins. If one of them gets over the line, they've got their powers. That's being treated as the amendment to an existing treaty, and we're not debating it, and we're not going to vote on it in either house. And the clauses to do with human rights are all removed from the international health regulations under this new amendments. Um, and it's just replaced with a bland statement saying that the WHO will treat everyone with equity. Well, if it's treating everyone badly, that's still equity, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. And they don't mind which horse gets over the line. It's, it's very, very clever how they're doing so it. So it seems that the it's been set up in order to succeed, regardless of what objections it might face. And indeed, it is facing a lot of objections. I think one of the things that's changed in recent years is that people have uh, become attuned to uh, different types of political manoeuvres that are way beyond the partisan politics that we're invited to see as defining oh, the, the, our the, the politics of, of right and left are, are gone, Russell. It's now the politics of right and wrong Good and evil, really. Both in, uh, I'm assuming you're American, Meryl. I am. Ma'am. Uh, like, like both in your country, the idea that, that there is a constituency for both the Republican Party and, and Democrat Party that is representative of 50% of the population. And I think it's even more pronounced in our country, Andrew, that, that the idea that sort of many, like, there's a significant number of people that would see Rishi Sunak to the solution of our problems and another constituency of people that would believe that Keir Starmer is the solution to our national and indeed now increasing relevant uh, international problems because as this legislation demonstrates it's a global issue that we are facing all of our nations are seeing as a policies or well, may I say movements if you don't mind uh, that could be seen as isolationist but it seems to me that there's an appetite for people to control our own countries this seems to be on the rise as a understandable reaction to globalism and it's bringing about new taxonomies in politics as you have just suggested andrew the idea that left and right are viable categories at a point when establishment versus anti-establishment appears to be the most important argument it means that there will be different types of alliances and we have to learn almost a new lexicon a new vernacular a new way of discussing politics would you say then and if that is true and I can see you're nodding, Andrew. Like, if it is true, how are you, as a person that's schooled in uh, uh, old school uh, representative democracies, adjusting to these uh, emergent dynamics? Well, you go through a period of mourning when you realise what's really going on, and you, you have to get over that. And as someone who has conservative values, one of the principles of conservatism I've always valued is we have to live in the world how it is, not like not how we'd like it to be. And this is how the world is. And when you look at what's the, the strange decisions that our parliament and government have, have made, 
the strange, same strange decisions have been made in parliaments around the world at the same time in lockstep. And that's around the COVID pandemic response, but also, you know, the sexualization, inappropriate sexualization of our children in schools. It's happening in Australia at the same time as it's happening here. Yes. And these censorship laws that are being passed simultaneously and indeed organisations like the WHO. Now, one of the things that surely you are both united by is your concern around uh, adverse events and vaccine injuries and the great um, (laughs) phantom that stalks us all, excess deaths. Why is there, is there, other than in Slovakia, is there any likelihood that we're going to see a serious investigation into excess deaths? And no. what's the most reliable data you've seen that excess deaths are, is something we have to take very, very seriously? It's a question yeah, for you. Well, a, lot of, away, a, lot of, a lot of questions. Um, well, I, I tried 26 times last year to get a debate on excess deaths before I got one. Uh, I spoke in an adjournment debate of half an hour on the 20th of October last year, uh, having tried t- for 26 sitting weeks to get that debate. So, so you can only apply on date on weeks when we're sitting. So mm. it was more than six months. Um, very few people there, but I had a bunch of eminent scientists, all who've been suspended, demonetized, sacked from their universities. And we had an event in, in Parliament on the 4th of December. I managed to get 20 MPs there, 17 of them signed up, and we managed to get a 90-minute backbench business debate uh, on trends in excess deaths, which happened on the 16th of January. And a number of MPs turned up for that. It was well subscribed. And now I've got 24 MPs who have supported me, and we've had a successful application for a three-hour debate in the Chamber of the House of Commons where that issue of excess deaths needs to be debated. But the problem is the conspiracy of the parliament is that I'm raising issues which no, the main parties don't want to talk about. If you have to think about it, it was very clever during the pandemic. So the SNP were in charge of the COVID response in Scotland, Labour were in charge in Wales, and the Conservatives were in charge in England. So they've all got a vested interest in saying we did everything right. So they don't, none of them want to have that debate because ultimately they all know the truth, that they, it was wrong. And even the COVID inquiry, which is, is a whitewash, they've announced two weeks ago that the module four, which is to deal with the safety and efficacy of the vaccines, has been postponed indefinitely, certainly until after the next general election. Given that the rhetoric throughout the pandemic period was that we ought be following science, verifiable information, data that was reliable, how does it make you feel as a physician, no longer a physician while your licence is revoked by these extraordinary forces, that these inquiries are being conducted in such a dubious manner that seem, as Andrew has uh, suggested, designed to prevent useful conclusions being reached? How does that uh, tally with your own understanding of empiricism? Okay. Um... Well, first of all, the scientific method, you know, doesn't have fixed ideas. You're allowed to continue to examine questions. You need good data. Um, the government, uh, my government, your government, other, your government actually seemed to be providing reasonable data for longer than most, but stopped more, about more than a year ago. Um, different Canadian provinces for a while seemed looked like they were providing good data, then stopped. Um, 
it was even written up in the New York Times, which is not normally a reliable uh, source of information, that the CDC was withholding massive amounts of data from the public. You know, we've had to sue the FDA to get data that is supposed to be in the public domain. So what's happened is that um, basically we have a uni party, and this uni party is, is a global uni party in most of the developed countries of the world, if not all. Um, we have people running these countries who appear to have been vetted by some supranational organization like the Bilderbergers or the World Economic Forum. We don't really understand how they got into position, but they seem to be uniformly incompetent. <laughs> uh, you know, people like Jacinda Ardern or the, the former leader of Finland or Justin Trudeau um, in France. There I draw the line. Have you not looked at that man's haircut? It's, <laughs> it's delightful. Before you leap to conclusions like that, that these are somehow globalist stooges with no interest in representing their their populations and constituencies. This, is, uh, I think, this is astonishing. And when you mentioned for a moment the FDA, I increasingly wonder if these various uh, the funding of these organisations make them vulnerable. And whether it's the FDA, there's an alarm going off in here, or the uh, or the WHO, it seems that the that these well, agencies um, operate in order to implement implement an unseen will that is absolutely antithetical to democracy. And that's before we get to the revolving door between pharmaceutical companies and the government. Uh, in our country, Andrew, Jonathan Van Tam, who was one of the voices of the pandemic, one of the voices we look to to rely on, uh, where does he work currently? I don't know. He works track at of these the, he's, he's got a plum job at Moderna. What, Moderna? Hold on. Weren't they making vaccines during the <laughs> pandemic and Rishi Sunak what did he do for well, a living um, prior for prior to becoming oh, you mean chancellor the Thaleem uh, investment fund in the through the Cayman Islands owns, ele owns 11% of Moderna what? So there's another connection. So Jonathan Van Tam, who was the voice, and yet when people have reasonable people, scientists and committed politicians with whom I'm sure there'll be a raft of issues upon which we would disagree, but fundamentally I think we agree with our rights to have free speech, the ability to debate and communicate. As you've said, the principles of science require ongoing intrepid investigation, objectivity, free exchange of ideas, and whether it's Jay Bhattacharya and the other great physicians who were silenced at the beginning of this debate, or personal facts family physicians who wanted to do the best for their patients, which is the sacred uh, bond, but the, it must exist in modern obligation. medicine. For it to be, it's an obligation. Well, the, the science is never settled. Anybody who says to you, the science is settled, that isn't the way science works. I mean, even doctors qualifying this week will know, they'll be told in medical school that half of what you learned will be proven to be wrong in, within 10 years. You need to keep learning. Even since the start of this conversation, Andrew... The, the Things will have been debunked. <laughs> <laughs> There's debunking taking place all over the place, uh, relentlessly. Andrew, one of the things that I feel is significant is like, you are doing your best, and for which I salute you and applaud you, to, through the institutions of government, represent what appeared to be the will uh, of your constituency and a much broader one when it comes to this significant era, which, uh, from my perspective, merely as a citizen and an observer and uh, an interested party, appears to have been that the pandemic 
offered us a window into how institutional power operates, the relationship between the media and the state, the relationship between Big Pharma and the state, and, and perhaps most significantly of all, these globalist organisations like the WHO and their ability to implement power. Was this something that was, uh, that, that was astonishing to you? Did you? Was that your purview prior to the pandemic period? That Because oh, well, well, if it was, why the hell did you even become a politician? Because it surely must have been evident there's nothing you can do from within Westminster. Well, I'd got involved um, through a constituent in the Post Office Horizon scandal at a very early stage. The famous Post Office Horizon, which has defined the news cycle in the United Kingdom, where it's found that some faulty equipment meant that some postmasters, people that ran post offices and mail facilities, were wrongly convicted of financial crimes and theft and embezzlement, crimes they, they did not commit. Well, that's, that was a big scandal when it was a television programme. No one cared about it till it was a television programme. But once it became a successful television programme, the entire political space and media space became temporarily obsessed because it's fate accompli it's over now no one's at risk Tony Blair's probably done speeches for Fujitsu everyone's probably had their money out of it so you knew about that prior to everyone talking about it that's interesting How well I, within a few weeks of being elected I was approached by a constituent who was Michael and Sue, well, Susan Rudkin and Michael Rudkin Michael Rudkin's character is one of the stars of the program he was the chair of the National Postmasters Federation he's the man who went to Fujitsu's headquarters on an official visit believes that he was mistaken for someone else shown everything, including Fujitsu uh, IT engineers doctoring accounts in Horizon sub-postmaster systems without them knowing about it, questioned them about it, then they realised who he was, was thrown out of the building, drove back to Ibstock post office in my constituency, thinking about it, went to bed, and the next morning his wife had mysteriously got a £44,000 shortfall on her computer and they were both prosecuted and discredited. And when he approached me, this was an unbelievable story, a conspiracy theory. But I looked at these two people who were clearly physically and mentally broken. They were raking up old wounds. They were convicted criminals, fraudsters, and they had nothing to gain. And they had a, previously had a blemishless back, uh, track record. I went to other MPs and said, have any of you had a, a sub-postmaster who's had a, you know, run a post office for decades and then suddenly been accused of a massive fraud and says they're innocent? And they, mysteriously, they, they were these people. We formed a little group. Um, I, we, we met with the post office and they were officious and always flanked by very expensive lawyers. We met with the sub-postmasters who were very grateful to anyone to hear their story and were very open. And I managed to ambush the post office that they said the system was perfect and bomb-proof, so they had to let me put a forensic accountant in. And I got a good forensic accountant, a contact of mine called Ron Warmington, a second site. And the moment he got in there, everything started to break open. But I had told the government that the cabinet officer had got to fund, got to fund that investigation because they said, no, we're going to let the post office fund their own investigation. I said, well, the moment they find something, they're just going to say, well, um, you know, we're at the piper, who pays the piper calls the tune. They're going to try and shut the investigation down. And that's exactly what happened. But Ron Warmington was a man of high moral standing. He withstood the battering the post office were giving him. He gave me the unredacted reports and then we got a whistleblower from Fujitsu to come forward and he was one of the IT engineers that had met Mr Rudkin. It was all true. Everything Mr Rudkin said it was true. But Andrew, currently in the UK, for those of you that are not familiar with UK politics, Andrew is being continually attacked, cast out 
of your own party called a lunatic and a conspiracy theorist simply for asking questions about what's happened in the pandemic period. And yet with this story of the day that people are very excited about because it's been televised and dramatized and there's grandstanding and desk thumping and we must, something must be done, essentially a safe issue other than the tragedies that is caused for those directly affected by it. You were involved on the ground floor. You spotted while other people were dishing out CBEs to postmasters, further contracts to Fujitsu. At that point, you were saying that there was something to see, that there was evident corruption, that there was exploitation, that you couldn't trust the legacy media's perspective on it, that Parliament was uh, ought be discussing it and more open to it. So it seems to somewhat parent a question that you offered in uh, Parliament recently, that there are echoes, shades, and uh, uh, I would say... Um, comparisons to be made between this example of collaboration, corruption, um, whitewashing, and what we've experienced in the last few years. And even just to hear that you had the integrity to get involved in that story before it was something that was popular and people were all excited about, must surely mean that people cannot question your integrity with the same glib certainty. Well, anybody, anybody watching, listening to this can go into Hansard back in 2015 and look in and type in post office Andrew Bridgen and they will find the full account that was covered in that television programme. I gave that account to the House of Commons nine years ago, word for word. That's amazing. And and no one no one paid any attention. Is anyone attention. giving you any credit for it now? Are they like your own pike? I know he was right about the post office. Maybe he's right about the vaccines. <laughs> Are you getting any kickback credit? I was right about HS2. I voted against that and said it'd be a disaster for 10 years. And it was a disaster for 10 years. It never know, happened. I'm going to start studying your voting record. <laughs> I think you're the Nostradamus of I was, the house. I, I was right about the modern slavery in the garment industry in Leicester as well. But Now, Andrew, don't show off. No. <laughs> I, it, from 2014 onwards, we knew, when the, when, as soon as the Fujitsu whistleblower came forward, we knew that everything Mr. Rudkin said it was true and that all, because post office were misleading in court that no one could alter it and they could, every conviction was unsafe on the basis of, of that. I went around to the BBC, ITV, Sky, Channel 4 News, The Times, The Telegraph, everyone else, and said... I've got the evidence. Here's the story. All these people are innocent. This is the biggest miscarriage of justice in UK history. Run this story and you'll get an award. Mm -hmm. And they all liked it. But nobody would run it. The fact is, and now, that's exactly what's happening with the vaccine harms now. It's, of course, it's precisely what's happening, and yet, of course, you know, in my view, this is a, a even more serious issue because it's a global one, because it's, of the medical impact, and because of what it reveals to us about the nature of global power. Perhaps one silver lining that we might look to is the fact that now you don't have, of course, you do have institutional media that solely exists in order to amplify the message of the powerful, that accepts money from, for example, the pharmaceutical industry and amplifies their message that has an intrinsic relationship with the state and therefore amplifies and normalizes their messaging but thankfully we have independent media now that grants direct access currently before the censorship laws take a stranglehold of the, the nation uh, and, and indeed the world uh, that can convey information openly and people can decide for ourselves whether or not we believe the information to be true. How, how have you found it trying to convey some of these complex and challenging stories, stories both of you, Meryl, you and uh, as well, Andrew, of course, in a new independent media space? I know that you will have been smeared. I know you will have faced uh, attempts to discredit you and that you would have been attacked. And yet, because what you 
you are saying is, in my opinion, true, you will have found sympathetic listeners. And do you get a sense that more and more people are starting to understand the nature of truth? More and more people are coming together in order to oppose the establishment, willing to overlook our, what our distinctions and differences may be in recognising that we have a common enemy at this point. Well... Uh, yes. I mean, I think the movable middle is moving in our direction. The problem is that there's a considerable number of people who, who are chained to the mainstream media. And um, nobody really talks about the fact that as long as you allow censorship, you cannot have democracy. You know, every single mainstream media is pumping out false narratives. And, um, you know, so we live in a totalitarian world right now. Why aren't the legacy media covering stories like this? Why are they not interested in excess deaths? Why are they not interested in uh, venerated and sensible physicians being struck off? Why are journalists not interested in anything other than amplifying the agenda of the powerful, Andrew? Have you found any sympathy in the Well, every media? everyone on our side of the argument, um, Merrill's side, my side of the argument, we've all been castigated, smeared, thrown out of our positions that's whether you're a scientist a doctor or a politician or a comedian I'll or a add. comedian right. or a comedian there's nothing to laugh about here um and the example i'll give you is i spoke out on the 13th of december 2022 when the government were being approached by the medicines and healthcare product regulatory agency the mhra 86 percent funded by big pharma and supposedly the regulator to look after oh us in the UK, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, who declared between them a billion pounds of interest in big pharma stock. That's astonishing. Astonishing. And they're, they're, they're our How protectors. They and they, they recommended they, that the MHRA asked for permission from the government, authorisation to vaccinate healthy children down to the age of six months. And I knew that there was no risk to a healthy child from COVID, but there was a risk from the vaccines. And even mm. the most pro-vaccine person, I persuade that these children, there's never been one of these that's died of, of COVID-19, but there will be some harm by the vaccines. And so I spoke out on the 13th of December. From that moment, I was cancelled by the mainstream media. Wow. I had a meeting with the grandees of, of the Conservative Party in January when they suspended me. They're the sort of senior administrators. Yeah, 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 yeah well, well very, very, very high up. And, and at this stage, they'll be, remain nameless. And I spoke for an hour and a half, concerns about the vaccines, the science, and my degrees in biology, biochemistry, genetics that. and virology. You're overqualified. Uh, and uh, all of these degrees, and, and, you were there uh, on the post office ground floor. Absolutely. Oh, my God. And... Uh, and and also the, my concerns about NG163 and the medazolam and morphine scandal. And we'll explain that. I don't know what that is. Potential uh, euthanasia used oh, on... Yeah, you, know, you know the, um, the, the vulnerable elderly who were in hospital who were cleared out in spring oh, yes. 2020 to yes. make way for the expected first wave of COVID yes. patients? Well, I asked the government a long time ago how many of those were moved out into care homes and, and nursing homes and how many were dead within 7, 14, 28, 56, 72 days of on their death certificate, COVID-19 and B, other causes. And the government came back and said, we don't hold any of that data. That's extraordinary. Amazing. How but, well, I have a pretty good, I'm afraid I have a pretty good idea what happened to them. And I think most of them were, were put down as COVID deaths and they may well have been euthanized with midazolam and morphine, uh, which is a, a respiratory suppressant. Why would you give someone you think's got COVID a respiratory suppressant? Andrew, it's pretty terrifying. And, 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 and at the end of that hour and a half meeting, I was told by the, the Conservative Party spokesperson 
Andrew, there is currently no political appetite for your views on the vaccines. There may well be in 20 years' time, and you're probably going to be proven right. In the meantime, you need to bear in mind you're taking on the most powerful vested interest in the world with all the personal risk for you which that will entail. And I said, I think this meeting's over. Personal risk that he entails, that sort of sounds like a, like a threat. It's extraordinary when you enter into this space to see the kind of machinery that will work against you. I'm talking here specifically about groups like Logically AI, groups that are used to crush dissent online and amplify the messaging, again, the preferred messaging of what we have to call, for simplicity's sake, the establishment elite. Given these experiences, in particular the last one that you've just relayed, Andrew, and all of its um, uh, redolent terror... Do you feel that democracy itself needs to change? And do you think, and I'll ask the same question to you in a moment, if I may, Meryl, that the British public have an appetite for a different type of democracy? Because certainly I see it in America because we've seen a different class of political figure emerge for whatever you think of him. Donald Trump represents a strain of populism that is uh, certainly novel. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, who's tied his colour to the mast of this issue way before anyone I knew was talking about it. I noticed that what part of your expertise was contagions and you sort of indicated bioweapons and Bobby Kennedy was the first person I heard talk about dual purpose research and ideas that once belonged to the realm of conspiracy but now have to roundly be referred to as facts. Do you think that there is the opportunity and possibility for new emergent uh, political um, what do I want to say? Leverage and indeed um, well, change it, in this it, country? It's interesting that when I was expelled permanently from the Conservative Party for my views on the vaccines and retweeting a tweet from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Dr. Josh Getzko and a quote that said, a, a, a world-leading cardiologist told me that the rollout of the vaccines is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. I was declared as an anti-Semite racist. <laughs> Anti-scientific. Okay, so is this we're going to move towards a wrap? Well done, telling me. Well done for doing your job there, because that's for for all of our time. Okay, so you you would so uh, given that kind of well, well when when deployed, that when that happened. I was expelled from the Conservative Party. Not one of my colleagues who I'd served with for 13 years in the House of Commons texted me or rang me and said, this is bad news, Andrew. But I got a call from Robert Kennedy Jr. within an hour from America, a presidential candidate, and he said, this is disgraceful what they're doing to you. Yeah, so in a sense, that indicates that what is happening now that is a global response to global. Well, we've got to fight. We've got to fight where we are. There's nowhere to run. This is happening all over the world. There's nowhere safe. We have to stand and fight our own ground. It's extraordinary. I'm so glad that you're still a member of Parliament and you still have the ability to raise these kind of questions and inquiries well, in if that it's, context. If it, it, uh, there's going to be an election soon and it'll be up to the people of North West Leicester, but I've got a very good chance of holding my seat. Yeah, that'd be fantastic if that happens. What do you think about, uh, Meryl, the way that the political landscape is shifting in your country? It seems that anti-establishmentism is on the rise, that people don't trust institutions anymore, don't trust democracy, don't trust the media, don't trust the judiciary, don't trust many of their institutions. Do you get a sense that radical change may emerge that could be positive? Well, more people are independents than, um, you know, have subscribed to a party in the United States. However, none of us think that the voting uh, machinery is reliable. So uh, we don't know if our, you know, rep elected representatives have actually been elected. 
And mm. that is probably going to be even a bigger problem during this next presidential election when there is so much at stake. And I really am talking about a takeover of the world. That's why I'd like to announce that our show today is sponsored by Fujitsu, who are going to be making new <laughs> voting machines, 100% reliable. If you vote, whether you're living or dead, that vote will be registered for a candidate of the globalist's <laughs> choice. We, we desperately do need democratic change in the UK and around the world. I mean, the symbol of the Houses of Parliament is the portcullis, the defender of the nation. When the drawbridge is down, you've still got the portcullis, the last defender of the castle. Hmm. We have not defended anybody, and I'm, I'm really sorry about that. The system's not worked. The regulators, the, all the institutions set to protect public health and public interest have failed. And we need something different, something better. Andrew, thank you so much. I'd like to thank both of you, Meryl and Andrew, for being so brave for the sacrifice that you've made in your various possession, uh, professions, excuse me, to speak openly and truthfully. It's literally the only chance that we have is to tell the truth to as many people as possible and allow them to determine for ourselves what direction we may go in subsequently. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Meryl. Thank you. Thank you.